Hello everyone, welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today and let's get into this episode. Welcome everyone to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. My name is Sam Adams and I'm an ongoing contributor to the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. We are a national campaign dedicated to advocating for policies that expand affordable housing for households with the lowest incomes. April is Fair Housing Month. So this month we're talking to experts and practitioners who can help us understand the historical context and current state of housing discrimination in the United States, as well as the potential policy and programmatic responses that can better promote equal opportunity in the housing market. Our guest today is Dr. Lincoln Quillian. Dr. Quillian is a professor of sociology and faculty fellow at the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. He received his PhD from Harvard in 1997 and formerly was on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin. His past work includes studies of neighborhood poverty concentration, internal migration, racial residential segregation, and racial attitudes. His current work is focused primarily on two projects. The first project is a meta-analysis of audit and correspondence studies of racial and ethnic discrimination in labor markets around the world. The second project analyzes residential mobility patterns to better understand the sources of racial and economic residential segregation in American cities. His work is highly relevant to our current focus on fair housing, and we're thrilled to have him join us today. Welcome, Dr. Quillian. Thank you, Sam. I'm uh, delighted to be here. All right, so just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your road to conducting academic research, and in particular, maybe what led to your specific interest in segregation and discrimination? I I think the thing that really got me interested in questions like this was uh, when I was an undergraduate at the the University of Chicago. And I had grown up in kind of suburban Southern California. And then when I uh, went to college at at Chicago, it was just a very, very different environment than, you know, where I'd grown up. And, uh, you know, it, it felt like the kind of inequality in general and racial inequality in particular was really in your face there. And I think that really made an impression and made me want to want to study it. And uh, the other part of it that I think got me interested was when I was at Chicago, too, that was 
uh, the focus of a lot of kind of intellectual discussion by the faculty at that time, especially in sociology, the discipline that I ended up studying. There were a number of like, you know, famous sociologists, as famous as sociologists get just about uh, who were on the faculty uh, at that time and who were like deeply engaged in these questions. There was William Julius Wilson was there who had, had written <clears throat> The Truly Disadvantaged about the rise of urban poverty. And Doug Massey was also on the faculty at that time who had, uh, you know, written about uh, segregation in America, written famous book, American Apartheid, and was very engaged in issues about race and segregation as, as sources of persistent racial inequality. So I, I think that the fact that there was kind of so much intellectual attention to those questions between Massey and Wilson was just very attention getting to an undergraduate and also made it seem a very relevant and like there were a lot of academic ways to study it. When I was actually at Chicago, they they actually had Massey and Wilson hold a face-to-face debate where they kind of dragged them into the same room and had them debate their different perspectives on importance of kind of historic versus contemporary racism and uh, the importance of segregation as sources of racial inequality and how much that had changed over time in America. So I think that's a really nice segue to our next question. I want to talk about your particular approach to, to research. So Your work combines aspects of sociology, and you kind of mentioned the intellectual tradition that you're a part of starting at at UChicago, but then also uh, what you refer to as applied quantitative methods. So could you tell us a little bit about what defines your particular approach to conducting research, and how does it fit into the broader fields of academia and social policy in particular? I think of my approach as as being pretty similar to uh, the approaches used actually in a lot of quantitative sociology and also in, in social demography. And I think my, my work tends to be a little bit interdisciplinary. I'm definitely very interested in work done by people in psychology, people in economics, people in anthropology on uh, the same kinds of questions. And a lot of times I, I take a sociological approach, I think, but um, you know, informed very much by the work of these other disciplines and, and maybe in some cases too by their methodologies. You know, I, I do believe too that it's, it's just important to be clear about how we reach a conclusion and kind of what evidence supports it. And also to be clear sometimes about what we, um, what we do know and don't know, including what we don't know. You know, when I talk to journalists, it's often the case that journalists a little bit tend to push you toward, you know, making strong conclusions. They don't want academic hesitancy in stating things about conclusions because it's, you know, a little bit less good for from a journalistic standpoint. But I, I believe it's important to, you know, be clear about how strong our evidence is for different conclusions. Definitely. So let's drill down a little bit and talk about uh, what we think is most relevant for, for Fair Housing Month here, which is a, a recent paper that you, uh, you put out called Racial Discrimination in the United States Housing and Mortgage Lending, 1976 to 2016. So what was the inspiration behind this specific paper? And why do you think it's an important topic to study? You know, I think that discrimination is, is a, a key problem that kind of undercuts the promise of equality that we hope that America attains. And the, uh, you know, housing is a critical sector for people for all kinds of reasons. It's both something that is, is very important um, housing and neighborhood in terms of people's quality of life. It, it anchors all kinds of other things that happen about, you know, like which school people tend to go to 
and uh, what, you know, the area in which they're likely to be able to find a job. Uh, so the questions that I were kind of interested in were, to what extent has discrimination been changing over time? You know, in a way, this, this connects to the kind of questions that William Julius Wilson had been raising that I, when I was an undergraduate at Chicago, people were focusing on, you know, whether there has been a declining significance of race or a persisting significance of race. You know, has anti-discrimination legislation and other legislation worked at reducing racial discrimination in American society? Uh, you know, a lot of times I think people have a, a little bit of kind of automatically optimistic notions about the idea that there's progress in society. And so things like racial inequality are viewed as kind of uh, tending to automatically have racial discrimination decline as part of this racial progress. And I was really, you know, interested in to what extent those notions are, are actually correct. And so I, this isn't your first paper kind of studying discrimination. So what does other research, including your own, tell us about the broader state of racial discrimination in the United States today and how it's changed over time? What we found is that, you know, racial discrimination very clearly persists in American society in, in a lot of ways. And um, the clearest evidence for that comes from a lot of kind of experimental studies where people send out testers or they send out resumes or something with different clues as to the race or ethnicity of the person that is applying for a job or for a mortgage or to rent an apartment. And those, you know, consistently find that there is persistent racial discrimination um, in the U.S. So th then the, the question of how it's changed over time is obviously a different one since we could have persisting racial discrimination, but it, it could have gone down. And, you know, I wrote one paper on employment discrimination changes over time that used these experimental studies to kind of look at whether it could find evidence as to what kind of change there had been. And it, at least over the last 25 years, could really find no evidence that discrimination against Blacks well, relative to right, whites had gone down. You know, white respondents had a persistent advantage in getting callbacks for jobs that Black respondents did not. And um, on average, white respondents received about 36% more callbacks than, than Black applicants do. And the work I was doing in this paper was really about uh, conducting a somewhat similar analysis looking at housing discrimination. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the specific methodology of this, uh, this paper, Racial Discrimination in U.S. Housing and Mortgage Lending, 1976 to 2016. So you refer to this as a meta-analysis. I think some of our listeners may be familiar with what that is, but others might not. So could you tell us a little bit about your actual methodological approach to this housing discrimination paper and how it fits into your broader pattern of work? Yeah, so meta-analysis is taking the results of previous studies and putting them together to come to an overall conclusion about something. And it's a, it's a method that's actually used very much, especially in medicine, to look at things like, you know, what is a drug do? Is it effective or not? And what are the side effects? And um, in doing that, you know, there'll be a bunch of clinical trials of a drug. And meta-analysis is a statistical procedure in a way to combine the results of the different clinical trials that have been done into getting one kind of best estimate of what is a drug do. Um, so it's a particular set of statistical procedures in a way to combine results from different studies to, together to get a better kind of overall estimate of what's going on. And what I did in, uh, in this paper was I took results from a lot of different studies of housing discrimination and also mortgage discrimination 
and I conducted a meta-analysis of them and specifically looking at the issue of whether there had been change over time. So in some sense, it compared older versus more recent studies that tried to assess discrimination in the housing market, in the mortgage market, to look at whether there had been um, a decline in discrimination in those markets or whether the level of discrimination had stayed the same. So um, the way that these studies work, you know, the housing market studies mostly have uh, testers that go out and apply for uh, something like to rent an apartment, and they have white or black applicants who are given very similar kinds of backgrounds, and then they see what kind of treatment they get, you know, whether they're told the unit is still available, whether they can see the unit, how many units are recommended to them that they look at in the particular um, apartment building or from the person that they're talking to about renting the apartment. And there have been actually quite a few of these studies done over time um, since the 70s. And so I uh, put them together into kind of a time series to look at whether there had been a change in the level of discrimination. And on the, on the mortgage side, the way that we did this, so for, for mortgage discrimination, it's more difficult to, uh, to use an experimental method it's to look at discrimination in that market. And the reason for that is because, you know, to really get all the way to whether or not you're approved for a mortgage or even to get through the first few steps, you need to provide a lot of information about yourself, about your credit rating about your background. And it's very difficult for experimenters to, you know, fake all that information. It also leads to a lot of ethical questions about whether they're using up too much time and resources of the people that they're applying to. And so the combination of those things means there are very few experimental studies of mortgage discrimination. And the few that are really just also look at a rather limited outcome of whether or not, you know, like an initial request for information gets answered. And to look at kind of the fuller picture of mortgage discrimination, you need to go a little further than that. So instead of looking at experimental studies, I looked at studies that had uh, tried to estimate the extent of mortgage discrimination based on the unaccounted for gap between households of different races and ethnicities who are applying for mortgages. So the way that these studies work is they take observational data on who's applied for a mortgage, their race or ethnicity, and things about them like their income level and where the home is they're applying for and its characteristics. And they kind of match applicants like Black and white applicants, Black, white and Latino applicants, and look at, you know, among applicants that have similar characteristics, were the outcomes similar or not? So this is sometimes called the residual method, uh, the method of using the residual to estimate how much discrimination there is. The residual is kind of after you've accounted for all the things that determine whether or not someone should get a, a mortgage. So for the mortgage discrimination section, we took the residual estimates from lots of different studies over time that had looked at whether or not people got a mortgage who applied for them, and then also things about the cost of the mortgage. And we looked at whether there had been a change over time in the size of that residual. You know, did, it, did it systematically across studies seem to get smaller or stay the same? And um, we actually, you know, in that case, we found that it stayed the same. So I want to talk about the time period of, of the, the time series that you conducted here. So the four decades that you studied is 1976 to 2016. So why is this particular period relevant to research about questions about housing discrimination and, and fair housing? Yeah, so in part, you know, 
to be honest, we're, we're studying that period because uh, that's where we have data available. <laughs> that's, you know, a period of time during which experimental, you know, most of the big kind of experimental audits that we could use to create our time series, uh, you know, begin in kind of the late 70s and then go on from there. And this is also when, you know, the, the better studies of mortgage discrimination began to be done using the residual method. But, you know, it's clearly a, just a very important period too in uh, American history, American uh, racial history that, you know, this was not all that long after the civil rights movement uh, and after things like the Fair Housing Act had been passed uh, and when their effects were still playing out. It's also a time when, you know, if you look at surveys about racial attitudes of white people, there were at least some trends of change. It, it depends on the question you ask. Some things changed, other things stayed the same. But beliefs, at least, that are sometimes called traditional prejudice, which are like beliefs that uh, whites should have the right to segregated neighborhoods. That was a survey question asked several times. The number of people that agreed with that kind of question, which was quite high in the 50s and 60s, went down pretty steadily during the 70s and 80s. And so uh, looking at, you know, the combination of legal changes, maybe changes in ideas about diversity and also changes in racial attitudes, whether that actually was producing changes in rates of discrimination in housing and mortgage markets. Um, those were the kinds of questions we were, we were looking at. <clears throat> and of course, they're also broadly relevant just for understanding um, questions about the changing significance of race over time in American society. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how you measured discrimination. And I think this paper is really notable because it has a variety of measures that all they get at kind of very different aspects of the housing market and the mortgage market. So what measures did you use to measure discrimination in the housing market? And which measures did you use to measure discrimination in the mortgage market? So in the housing market, we took four measures that we created from the various housing audits that were available. So the experimental studies of housing discrimination those were, was there a response to an initial request for information from the landlord? So that would be in response to a phone call or sometimes an in-person application or often to a mail application sent in through the mail. And just initially, was there the same response to the white and black auditor uh, or the white and Latino auditor? Then were they told that the unit is actually available or not that was advertised? You know, were they both told the same thing about that? Since these were you most of the time paired audits where there were two applicants, one white and one non-white applicant for the same advertised, you know, rental apartment or in the, in the ownership market for, you know, the same advertised sale unit. And then uh, how many units were recommended to them? So a lot of times they would get referred to other units that they could possibly look at or consider renting or buying. And how many how many homes did they actually, or apartments did they actually get to look at? So we created measures essentially of those four things in the housing market. And in the, in the mortgage market, we looked really at uh, two outcomes. And one was, did the white and black or on average were, were costs different or was there a significant gap in mortgage cost such that black and Hispanic versus white applicants for mortgages were they getting quoted mortgages on similar terms or, you know, were they receiving mortgages on similar terms? And then as well, uh, did, did they just get approved for the loan that they applied for, you know, statistically controlling to try to make it that the Black and Hispanic applicants 
were on average similar to the white applicants in terms of things like their income and the type of housing that they're looking for. And so the nice thing about having these really nuanced measures is that you get very nuanced findings. So instead of just kind of one big takeaway, you can really drill down into the specifics of how discrimination plays out in the housing market. So let's start there. What were your primary findings in regards to the trends in the housing market specifically over this 40-year period? So in the housing market, we found that responses to the owner or agent, just whether or not there was a response to the applicant, that the amount of discrimination in that, there was discrimination both in both in the earlier period and that persisted in the present period, but there was a decline in that over time. There was considerably more discrimination in the late 70s and 80s than there were more than there was more recently. And likewise, in the chance of being told that the unit or house is available, there was um, there was a lot more discrimination in the 70s, 80s, and 90s than there were more recently. That in the modern period, it was much less frequently the case that the white applicant was uh, told the home was available and the a black or Latino applicant was told, no, actually, we've already rented that or that's no longer available for some other reason. That occurred much less often. But then on the, the outcomes of the number of homes recommended and the number of homes that people actually got to see, these measures of more subtle types of treatment that were less kind of in-your-face forms of discrimination, there, there was much less change over time. There was both higher rates of unequal treatment. Um, that is, it was much more often the case that uh, White applicants were told more homes were available and got to see more homes or more apartments. And, and that had only gone down a little bit in an amount that wasn't actually statistically significant in our analyses in general. So in these more somewhat more subtle forms of discrimination, that persisted at a very high level. Uh, but the things where um, applicants showed up and were told, you know, the Black applicant was told, no, we've already rented that home, that sort of unequal treatment had gone down um, much more over time. Now let's shift to the discussion of mortgage discrimination. What were your primary findings there? So there, pretty distressingly, we found that we couldn't really find evidence that there had been decline in um, the gap in kind of mortgage outcomes in mortgage discrimination for either of the two outcomes we looked at. It looked as though there was still gaps in cost on average and there were still gaps in loan approval, and we couldn't really find evidence that that had gone down in the more recent period as opposed to the earlier period. So one nice thing about a meta-analysis is that it has potentially more generalizability than an individual study because you're kind of taking these different studies and putting them together. Uh, but are there any potential limitations of either of these analyses that consumers of research should, should think about as they interpret the results? Yeah, so our, our mortgage results in particular, the residual method does have a lot of limitations to it. Um, trying to statistically adjust in a way, or that's what the individual studies are each trying to statistically adjust for differences between the home buyers in things like their income and in the type of property they're buying, and in some cases for their things like their credit rating. And you know, one thing is that the, the studies over time don't always have exactly the same sets of controls that they're able to use in looking at these different outcomes. Um, so that may have, uh, that's a limitation of the studies. And then many of the studies can't control for sort of everything that might plausibly, you know, influence the outcome of mortgage 
whether a mortgage is approved and the cost for it. Some of the studies have um, things like credit scores that they managed to get uh, and then use that as a type of statistical adjustment. But quite a few of the studies too aren't able to get that. That data is particularly difficult to get and then to merge with other data on home ownership. So the, the, the kind of the limitations of the residual method that are well-known in social science, those are, those are a limitation to those uh, estimates over time. Having said that, whether we, um, you know, include or exclude the studies that have the kind of higher level of control for credit scores and things like that, that doesn't really change the estimates that we get overall about the trend. In the housing audits, I think that um, there we have a, a much better basis, you know, there we have a, a, a much more methodologically sound a kind of procedure or one that's kind of viewed as the gold standard in social science, this experimental mm -hmm. method. Right. Um, and so there, I think that we really have pretty good evidence on, on uh, the trend over time. I, those, I feel, you know, very solid estimates. They also line up with the estimates you get if you just look at the series of audit or correspond audit studies really that were done mm -hmm. by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Those have fairly similar results to what we get when we kind of put all the different studies together. Okay, so you, so you have these clear findings. You have persistence in discrimination in both the housing and mortgage markets. You have a sharper decline in more explicit forms and uh, maybe less of a decline in the more implicit forms in terms of you know, units recommended and things like that in the housing market. So thinking about these findings uh, and then kind of extrapolating from there, what do you think the implication of these findings are for policymakers, especially those that are concerned about housing discrimination? I think one of the things they suggest is that, you know, we really still need continued enforcement of fair housing law and that, you know, there should be efforts to police discrimination in the housing market, that there still is discrimination and it still matters and that there need to be efforts to look at that. And then in some cases to prosecute people or at least to have civil penalties in cases where there clearly is discrimination. You know, one of the most effective ways to find discrimination in the markets where it's possible are things like uh, these experimental methods. Um, and, you know, they can be used by enforcement agencies. And, you know, some local enforcement agencies use them as a way to try to find discrimination in housing and then, you know, to have legal consequences for the perpetrators. And I think that's that's important that we could we could use more of that. In the mortgage market, I think that you know, there needs to be continued analysis of data on gaps in mortgage outcomes and, um, you know, asking the question of why are the gaps so persistent over time? Why are they as large as they are? And government agencies kind of pressing lenders on those kinds of kinds of questions that, um, you know, there shouldn't be persistent gaps after accounting for a, a large number of things that otherwise uh, determine whether or not you get a mortgage or the terms of the mortgage, a little bit pressing lenders as to why those gaps exist. Um, and also, you know, for lenders that uh, are giving out a lot of uh, mortgages, especially asking, you know, what's the gap for that particular lender? And is it uh, something that indicates discrimination? And so you obviously spent a lot of time studying various forms of discrimination, whether it's this housing discrimination or your, the employment discrimination that you mentioned earlier. Um, you made very substantive contributions to this field. I'm curious about what additional research you'd like to see in this area. So either projects that you're thinking about or working on, or that you think that other uh, scholars that are interested in this area might pursue. I think that I would like to see 
more uh, evidence or more uh, attempt to kind of keep up for one thing with just the general issue of trends over time, you know, whether we can find evidence that the persistent discrimination that seems to exist both in labor markets and in, in mortgage markets, whether there's evidence that that changes in the future and some kind of, you know, there could be efforts by the government to fund things like regular studies that are comparable in design that could give you good estimates of how much discrimination is there and how much is it changing over time. The HUD audits to some degree have, have done that, but um, I'd like to see those uh, continue at a regular pace. You know, HUD is funded roughly every 10 years or so, these uh, large audit studies that have looked at discrimination in the housing market and have persistently found it, although they've also documented the phenomena I discussed in this paper of declines of certain forms of housing discrimination. I'd like to see similar efforts in the mortgage market, although the methods that are used in those studies might have to be different because of the nature of, of mortgage discrimination and of, of getting a mortgage. Another topic, actually, I'm, I'm very interested in and would love to see more studies and work on to are efforts to look at things like systemic or institutional discrimination, systemic mm-hmm. or institutional racism in the housing market as a phenomena. You know, one way to think about that is that one type of kind of systemic or institutional discrimination is discrimination that's kind of direct discrimination against someone then creates conditions that make it kind of accumulate over time and make mm-hmm. it more or more, you know, potentially more difficult for that household to be able to do something like get housing or get a job. I think there are ways to, to study that, especially, uh, so experimental methods mostly get at direct discrimination, not what I would call systemic discrimination, but there are ways you could, you could think about using results from experimental studies, especially put together with other data or put together with multiple different types of experimental studies to look at a process by which if there's discrimination that tends to make it more likely that a household has to pay more for their mortgage, for instance, that then when they go out and they apply for their next mortgage, you know, they have lower a capital to be able to put down as a down payment or to finance the kind of next mortgage, which by itself creates, maybe they end up paying higher mortgage costs. So that's a way that, you know, discrimination at one point in time can then kind of create a long lasting kind of cycle of worse outcomes for that household um, beyond the effects of direct discrimination. And I think to, um, you know, to understand those processes better and to get clear at how important they are is a really important topic that you know, I and other people are trying to figure out better ways to get a handle on how important are those types of processes. Great. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. So on behalf of all of our listeners and the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, thank you, Dr. Pullian, for your generosity in in both spending your time and and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, You're welcome.